Welcome everyone to the Becoming Human podcast and today we're going to explore the polarizing discussion of tradition and progress. Last episode we looked at why both are necessary. One disposition by itself it's futile because if you are moving you will know where you are going based on where you've been but you also have to move. What, what is necessary then is a healthy relationship between tradition and progress where they work in collaboration. I call this roots and growth. Yes, like a plant. Because this conservative and progressive bend, these are not antagonists. They're not dichotomies within cultural or ideological preferences. They are both involved in the existential dance of being alive. So how do we participate in this dance? How do we use both roots and growth? That's what we're gonna get into today. First, just want to thank everyone who subscribes or shares or leaves reviews. That helps make this content accessible to those who might not otherwise find it. For more information or content, feel free to visit tylerkleberger.com where there are lots of articles and other deep dives into this journey of becoming human. And of course, if you are willing and able to support the show, you can do so at coffee, which is ko-fi.com slash becoming human. There's no prizes or rewards, just plain old generosity that is much appreciated. You can do a one-time tip or a monthly donation. Any of it helps me to continue to make this content, but let's get on with it. Let's learn, let's grow, and let's become more human. With all this conversation on conservative and liberal, you might be wondering where I fall on all of this. The fact that this show and and platform is called Becoming Human, and and I emphasize growing, well, that, that should be a bit obvious. The growth component is quite literally built into the whole premise of this show. It's less obvious, however, if I am a fan of rootedness. I'd I'd like to say that comes through, but maybe I'm not explicit enough about that. Either way, I'll occasionally get into conversation where folks begin to wonder, you know, how I vote or whether I'm in one camp or the other. Proud moment here. Most people never know where to place me. And that's my goal. Anyway, last episode, our opening art was this poem by Wendell Berry in Sabbath, 1999, volume six. And I'd, I'd like to read it again. We travelers, walking to the sun, can't see ahead. But looking back, the very light that blinded us shows us the way we came, along which blessings now appear, risen, as if from sightlessness to sight. And we, by blessing brightly lit, keep going toward that blessed light that yet to us is dark. One can only hope that I made some sense of that poem last episode with time and change and empirical limitations. Being alive is the equivalent of walking. We are travelers by the nature of time in existence. But we are traveling to what is unknown, you know, the equivalent of a bright, blinding light. We can't see where we're going. So we need to move, but we need to use what is known in order to effectively imbue that movement. And we looked at both the benefits and the problems of each aspect of tradition and progress, and basically... I don't think either of these ought to be used solely on their own. We need them both. 
Hence the metaphor of a plant. If you only have roots, that's not going to actually be a plant. And, and yes, I know there's such thing as root vegetables, which, by the way, also need vegetation to develop the root. But you also can't have a plant without roots. So how do we do that? Now, I'll be honest, there's no scientific theory that I know of which outlines the answer. This is primarily a sociological and psychological question that is very, very abstract and what we would call qualitative. There isn't any nomotheetic content out there, which, you know, that means using science to determine general laws. I haven't found any of that. There's a lot of discussion, however, and I always tend toward, you know, the practical side of theory anyway. So what should this discussion practically look like? Because in the end, this is about how we make decisions within the finite reality of life. Whether we're talking about how you handle conflict or relationships or organizational decisions, or simply how we should approach technological changes or political changes, the existential dance of roots and growth is a very delicate discipline that we have to refine. And we have to use our experience to make sense of the best way to move through the world. Now, before we get into that, those practical considerations, I want to cover one more detail about why I think both roots and growth, tradition and progress, why they're rarely held together. What's in the way of this? I want to make the case that this does need to be a mutual dance with both perspectives instead of just rallying behind one or the other. And when it comes to conservative or progressive, we emphasized how one adheres to time in the past, the other adheres to change. And we talked about how there's a lot of social pressure within identity politics, especially and in, in like these public personality brands, to divide us into camps. Let's be honest, it makes things more effective for a movement, but it's also more profitable. And usually this process, it's just pledging allegiance to one form or the other without considering the nuances or, you know, the philosophical and ethical complexity to those decisions. And that's what last episode was trying to do. Just help us be aware of all the moving parts here. But there's another social component to this that also exposes that most people who take up one mantle or the other are usually just specifically focused on a single benefit of their position. And then sort of villainizing the weakness of the other position. Uh, classical rhetorical and conflict techniques uh, call this projection. You know, you show, you know, what I have is good, and you point out that what the other has is bad, without ever paying attention or being honest about what the other has that might be good or what I have that might be a bit off. So there is this social superiority that we inhabit when we get into this conversation. And here's what I mean. Take your generic caricature of, you know, someone who blasts out allegiance to one of these perspectives, you know, and again, not necessarily the political affiliation or ideology, just a general disposition toward tradition or progress. Call them what you want. Both tend to claim that the other position is not working with all the information. You know, there's stuff that they just don't know, they don't realize, they're not aware of, and that's technically correct. You know, they're saying something true there. But they're only saying or, or seeing or confessing part of that. And this is a projection issue. 
projection is what happens when we portray ourselves as, you know, noble as possible. You know, we're good, we're right, we're correct, we're the fair, honest, sincere ones, etc. And then we look at the other, and they tend to embody all the bad stuff. Even bad stuff that you have, but you're just projecting onto them as a sort of deflection. And think of this in terms of a debate, which isn't the most productive way to discover truth or handle conflict, by the way. But a good debater is one who can latch onto the information someone else is lacking and expose their errors without revealing their own. At its worst, you know, this becomes the logical fallacy and argumentation of an ad hominem argument, but debates as we tend to do them are usually just about who is smarter or quicker on their feet, not necessarily which position is right or true. And this is what we see within this conversation of, you know, should you be a conservative or a liberal or tradition or progress? And we pit them against each other and we have to diminish the other to elevate the one that we adhere to. And especially because this conversation is so enwrapped with our identity, we tend to go through this process of projection and debate and positioning these sides as camps, as antagonists to each other. That being said, what is the actual claim when we promote the singularity or superiority of one side over another? Well, each stance here is going to claim that the other side has some kind of incoherency, you know, that they aren't working with all the information, which again is a bit true, but also isn't the whole picture. And that makes the side inferior in some way. So how does each side do this? Well, on the progressive side, the narrative becomes that the past is inferior or adhering to the past is inferior or has problems with it in some way. So think of it this way, the people who made the rules, the standards, the norms, the perspectives, beliefs, whatever, they didn't have all the information. So at best, and this is what we looked at last time, tradition can never embody what things are like now. And let's be honest, this is partly true. Tradition is based on the known data of the past and places confidence in that known data. What the past can't do, at, at least in accordance with change via time, is account for the present. Where this ends up going is that, you know, tradition and heritage are, as it's been quoted, dead people's baggage. Stop carrying it around and move forward. Or a slightly different version is, oh, that stuff's not useful anymore. It was a long time ago. Who cares? So I've seen this quote before, and, and I've heard this sentiment a lot, and I get it. But you know that this isn't the full story. Because you can't know anything or even have a present without the past. And even if you aren't going to replicate the past, it's still known data, and, and that's useful. Trying to start from scratch is both impossible and, well, it's kind of questionable. The progressive bend can have reluctance to utilize tradition in the existential dance, therefore, because if this logic is used, anything from the past lacks my context in the present. And where this starts devolving is where it's also sent as, it lacks my obvious enlightenment. Why should I let something inferior implicate my reality now? On the traditional side, though, the thing that they got going for them 
is a phenomenological honesty and humility. Sometimes. Usually, actually, I, I see the most adamant traditionalists just doing the same thing, except their version of my obvious enlightenment is because they access some piece of history or school of thought, and it becomes you know more of an insider-outsider game than an emphasis on the past and standards and precedents and history and all of that. You see this sometimes with, with people who have like unlocked some secret, unknown source of wisdom from the past, and it usually leads to a really convenient product. But for those that do actually embody the perspective, you know, the question becomes, why do you think you know better than thousands of years of people? Here, the veneer of progress is blinded by their own ignorance of thinking that they know what is better. And, and it calls out that phenomenological issue, that standing on your own shoulders is a very fragile act. The idea here is that a contemporary is not more enlightened or better than some inferior past, but that a limited person or group in the present is inferior to the conglomeration of the past. Ages past should have more credibility and gravitas for our meager blip on the holistic radar. At worst, this idea leads to the opposite effect than the progressive side, you know, that the present can never be trusted and the past who are also comprised of very normal people. You know, they're giants in comparison to anyone who's alive today. I mean, the people in reference uh, when, when this process is used, they're often romantically elevated as heroes. But in their day and age, they were typically seen as very normal people for their time too. So, of these two perspectives, one can't trust the past, the other can't trust the present. One says, we're the enlightened ones today, the other says, no, the former members of history are the only enlightened ones. Again, they both got a hint of truth, right? Like if you took both perspectives and, and you smash them together, they aren't mutually exclusive. The phenomenological limitation and the contextual necessity of the present, these might as well just work together in conjunction. Now, there's a lot more conversation to be had here. What is the best way to view the past and use what we have from those who have come before us? How should we view time? What are the dangers of only thinking of the present? What are the dangers of only considering the past? In the next few episodes, we will focus on each component of that in depth, from seeing history as a map to seeing tradition as alive. You know, there's two sociological approaches to time that we should talk about. And this tendency to glamorize what is known and romanticize what is unknown, we'll get into all that, but it all comes down to the two hints of truth we find in these common frameworks. Don't think that you, or, or just the modern moment, is somehow different or more special than the individuals who came before you. Don't see the past as inferior. Also, don't elevate the past as some perfect standard because you think anyone alive now is somehow inferior to the historic greats, who are just a very narrow selection of history that often tend to be the people with the most power, and who also were just regular human beings trying to navigate the same complicated world. That's what I wanted to say up front in this conversation about the existential dance. We've got some issues with how the conservative or traditional perspective is used and how the progressive or liberal perspective is used. But 
let's say you're not interested in all of that. I get it. The basic notion is that tradition is useful and progress is unavoidable. Okay, so once we can see that, the only thing we're missing is what we're going to do with it. Because none of this conversation so far in last episode and the beginning of this one implies that we will use tradition well or unfold progress healthily or meaningfully. And one of the best uses of tradition is to see how those before us have done this poorly. So how do we remember and use what is known while also continuing to adapt? How do we do this existential dance? And I like to see this as a collaboration. Those in the past, those in the present, those yet to come, we are all fellow sojourners in the same adventure. But the only thing known that can guide us is what happened back there. And the only power we have to add to the story is in the present. It's almost like the basic premise is to use history and memory and heritage in a way that continues the narrative of the world that those finite mortal souls before us couldn't do. Like, don't let the immense work of thousands of generations sit in stagnation. But also, don't ignore their contributions. Even if the best lesson they offer is what not to do. The, the invitation here is to recognize the value of both. In the limited span of our lives, our invitation is to have a proper sense of proportion to the meager, frail existence of those who came before us and the meager, frail existence of us today. W within this limited span of our lives, we compel the world forward as much as we can. But the best way to do that is to honor the folks who already gave us what they could in the limited span of their lives. And you know, hopefully, one day, someone will give us the credence we deserve, that we offered, and they'll pick up our contributions and carry them forward too. We are continuing a common journey. Use the value of those before us and contribute to the ongoing adventure with what you have to offer. This is the balance of roots and growth. And we'll focus on specifics if you're interested in that. But the core concept is that roots and growth, they're intimately connected. We move with our feet firmly rooted, not cemented, and we keep growing the plant of existence. And I wonder if this is why there are so many people groups in history that had, you know, like a monumental tree in their mythology. It's like they had the sense that they were part of something that would outlast them. It had deep roots, but its branches continued to spread. And the only thing we could do in the present is care for the same tree that our ancestors saw to and our descendants would inherit. Your job is to simply care with enough tenacity to see to the future by connecting to the past and therefore bring a better present. You're part of something bigger than you. You're traveling to a bright light of possibility. So don't just sit there and stare at it, but don't walk blindly toward it either. Looking backward, illuminates the path by which we can move forward. Okay, I did I did say that we're going to get into the practical stuff. And, and please remember, as I said, there's not an easily accessible scientific law for this. There's a lot of wisdom, though. And in my experience, I've tried to put together a framework to help me interact with these ideas because it's one of those that sounds good and you're like, yeah, 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 but how... 
And for me, this helps me see and think about this more easily, I guess. So I've broken this down uh, into three roots to consider and three necessities for growth. It's, it's my way of trying to balance both of these positive values that these perspectives bring. So first, three roots to consider. The first one I would frame as history. You know, big surprise there, I guess. But this is the central confrontation for the elevation of progress. The short version, we should know as much about history in general within this narrative of existence. We should probably know where we have been if we're going to continue the story. And a metaphor that I think of here is of a grand play. You know, we're, we're in Act 4. I don't know how many acts there are. Um, it's a bit of an improv. But you're going to give the next group the content by which they act out the next section. But you should also know what Acts 1 through 3 did, so you know what you're working with. What has been the story of humanity so far? Where has it been? What was involved? Where's it been trying to go? Should the trajectory keep going as it has? Does it need adjusted? There's a vast depth to existence and you're involved in that, and fortunately, and probably for the first time in history, we actually have access to a lot of it. Never before has so much information of the global past been so accessible to so many people. Like We should take advantage of that. But seriously, this, this is why a common theme in a lot of ancient societies was remembrance, remembering ancestors, creating oral traditions. That's how they kept the information going. Uh, like, like seriously, whatever your take on the Jewish tradition, if you read a lot of the Torah, there is this theme of passing the story on and remembering. In fact, to remember is the most given command in the Hebrew scriptures, 163 times, in fact. And I wonder if we have cast that aside because we constantly have so much of this right in front of us all the time. The curious endeavor of learning might be our best precedent for making decisions today. Essentially, our declaration is to, you know, nerd out as much as possible. And I sometimes wonder if the minds and the people of history are watching us, hoping that we will use what they handed us so that we can go even further than they did. You know, that that's the first way to be rooted, to just know what we're working with in its totality. Know the play you are a part of. Second component, traditions. And not all of us love that word. I get it. So please allow me to express what I mean. Being rooted in traditions and replicating traditions are not the same thing. At no point in this have I recommended mindless adherence to the past. What I am recommending, again, from my very limited experience, is appreciation and consideration of the past. You can appreciate a tradition without haphazardly duplicating it. In other words, don't just dismiss something because it's old or it's been around for a while. Yeah, it might, might seem a bit dull and those before you might have been a bit weird, but the fact that it has been the experience of more people than yourself might mean it's worth thinking about at least. I also think it's worth noting that you are also a bit weird. I'm just suggesting that you give other weird folks the same credence you give your weird self. 
I also don't just mean tradition in the sense of a traditional perspective or of traditional action. I think most people hear tradition and they think, you know, of a holiday or event or some long-standing code. By tradition, uh, here, here's what I mean. The specific acts, rituals, formation, and general ways of being that have been used with stability over time. And here's the deal. Humans are naturally egocentric. We can literally only see the world through our eyes. And we tend to have this adolescence about us. So when we inherit something that isn't intrinsically ours from previous generations, we kind of act the same way a teenager does. We look at it as old people's baggage. And that's fair. We have more information, more technology, better ways of doing things. You know, so we balk at what is handed to us. But then the teenager grows up. And what do they tend to do? They appreciate the meaning in what they received. Over time, we tend to own what we know for ourselves. So a lot of traditions and a lot of rebellion against tradition might just come from the fact that it's not ours, we don't know it, and it doesn't then have any meaning or value to us, so why should we continue it? What tends to happen, though, is we either create our, old, our own traditions kind of out of what we have known from those previous traditions, or we find them eventually to be meaningful because we begin to share the experience that led to those traditions in the first place. Now, none of this means that we just do things the same way, but, but growing up involves seeing more than when you know we sat in the corner with folded arms. The traditions that have come before us, they just I'm just saying they should be considered. Maybe they aren't good. Maybe they shouldn't be continued. But once you have the historic information, it now needs to be engaged as you decide how you will continue the next act of the same play. And if you think all of this is just rubbish, it's also the only information you have access to. So no matter how you decide to use it, you still kind of have to to use it. And I just want us to consider if generations of people presumed a particular means and process to being alive, we should also consider that their conglomerated wisdom might be a bit more useful than our singular minds. It's easy to think we are different when we are myopically blurred with our own perspective. But the teenager, in moving through adolescence, typically begins to see dynamics that they hadn't recognized before. Sure, you might know more than hundreds, even thousands of people over centuries. You also might not. We should just consider that. The last route is more specific. And this one I call context. The people and the places that comprise where we currently are. This is a bit counterintuitive to our globalized transient world. You know, history invites us to see the vast composition of everything. It is equally important to pay attention to what is immediately around you. Because in all honesty, with the massive scope of history, my one small life ain't going to flip the script of it. At best, I'm going to offer a dent. And that dent is likely to come in the reality that my finite soul can see, know, and care about. My context what's around me. So this is just kind of history, but in the place that I am. And at least for me, 
I gained an appreciation when I began seeing myself as a current inhabitant and steward of a location as a whole. And, and I have begun to see myself as belonging not just to where I am, but to the generations, both past and present, of where I am. Consider this with homes and property, okay? The, the modern view of homes and property tends to assume that we, the current owner or inhabitant, uh, we're the only ones that matter in that. And it's not that we come out and say that, it's we just maybe kind of assume it. We don't approach our yard or interior design or general care within the scope of continual endurance. Yet, one day, someone else will call this home. And many others have called this home before me. And so we should have those other inhabitants in mind. Like I think of those commercials that are popular for some painting uh, company where you know you got to repaint your home because you got to get rid of the presence of the old owners that's kind of how we process it in reality though you're just a current inhabitant someone else owned it before someone else is going to live there after you it's just how it works and i think we have the same approach to our places our towns our cities villages communities in general we don't take roots and growth seriously and transience is mostly to blame, but you know we become just travelers in the places we are, and we don't consider that this will one day extend past us. But the reality is that you are going to leave something behind for others to pick up, which also means that many others left something behind for you to pick up. So are you aware of what you've been handed that literally manifests itself in the regular actions of the everyday experience of your life in the place that it is. Who were the first inhabitants of where you are? How has the place changed? What people came and, and went? How did it grow? How did it reach the current version that you know, you're entrenched in? What has gone well? What has gone poorly? What gifts have you inherited in that specific location? And what mistakes should you be learning from? What voices have spoken to the world that you currently live in and see? Do you listen to them? Do you see? Knowing the story of your place will better allow you to continue it. And so whether it's through history, through tradition, through context, those are the cards you're working with. You might want to know what those cards are. All right. So what about the other side of this? If those are the roots, what about the growth? And we need to consider the aspects of history at large, traditions in general, and our local existence in particular. But the world is going to change. So how do we move accordingly? And once we have the roots, you know, once you've paid attention to the cards that you have, well, now how do we use them? How do we grow the plant? And the first thing I want to say, and something that has been applied, is that you are going to contribute something. You are an active participant in the story of the world. You have agency. You're a partner in the song of the universe. Just as all those previous voices left you with the world as you know it, you are now going to add your voice. Humans by default have this agency in the, in the ongoing nature of reality. The world is made up of the roles that we all play. We're going to affect things. We're going to leave marks on the world in one way or another. But only part of that role depends on your intention regarding the past. Once you are paying attention to that, okay, what do we do with it? So, 
The three components that I try to keep in mind are vision, reformation, and creativity. Vision is simple. It's just looking where you are going and taking the next step. And the reality is that, you know, change is very difficult. The past is familiar, it's known, and it's just easier to only look backward without actually moving anywhere. But even if we don't love progress, avoiding it might be the worst choice here. So vision is important because it allows us to move once we've looked backwards. It allows us to do something with the known past. And here's the important role of vision. There's a difference between change and transformation. And the difference is that transformation requires an intentional directive. The world's going to just change and we're going to be brought along with it. Can we engage with that process intentionally? That's what vision is about. That's why it's important because it gives you a destination where vision is about actually looking to where we want to move as the world is moving already. As we go into this uncharted territory, vision is how we have a picture of what the future ought to be that helps guide you through that unknown, which is, by the way, greatly aided by knowing where you have been. But once you know where you've been, now we can more easily answer the question, what isn't yet? what's missing, what ought to be. Having vision is about setting a destination and painting a framework so that we don't just wander into the future, but we start pursuing the best opportunity our meager minds can conjure up, which is, of course, best enacted when informed by the past. So that's vision. Second uh, component that kind of comes right from this is reformation. This is a perspective that is really necessary to anyone who really does want to stay where they are. On one hand, you can't actually stay where you are. It will change no matter what. But on the other hand, reformation implies that what is the current is not the ultimate. So this isn't just about familiarity. This is realizing that it's a bit inchoate. This is what I mentioned in the last episode about consequentialism. Even if the tradition is good, it still needs to adapt as time changes, which also means that whatever vision and reformation you bring forth, one day it's also going to need reformed because it's not the ultimate. It's like the story of the world is a giant building project, and it's going to take generations and generations to complete. So the current stones and structure, they shouldn't be held on to so dearly, we also cannot take the building in a random detached direction from what has been placed. Reformation means we're not creating a new building, we're continuing the current one, while also acknowledging that the current one is still unfinished. There's a building called the Hagia Sophia, and it's a great example of this. It's this magnificent building, and it's 1,500 years old. And part of the reason it remains is because it is continually being reformed, repaired, adapted, and cared for. The same narrative of the building, it stays the same. The initial intention, the framework, you know, that's what we have to work with, but it doesn't exist statically. The building is undergoing this unceasing reformation, and there's this constant imagination being imbued on it that continues what the forebears began 
but maybe in a way that they hadn't originally envisioned. That's what we're doing with Reformation. We're maintaining this structure and its intention and its purpose and its meaning and its value, and yet we're also adding to it. We're continuing to build the building that's already been started. So that's Reformation. Now, how do we enact that unceasing Reformation and that imagination and that vision? Creativity. And this is a favorite word of many a hipster and self-help personalities, I know. Creativity is, by the way, a very specific thing with descriptive processes, something we will cover in future episodes. Most of the things I hear or see about creativity are just kind of empirical anecdotes. No, this thing has been studied, analyzed, and philosophized about constantly. So, real brief, creativity is about imagining what is not, you know, vision and reformation, right? But it's also about practically enacting it. The, the best reference scholar here might be Edward de Bono, and his topic of lateral thinking brings up self-maximizing systems, which is kind of what we've been confronting on, on the traditional side, but then lateral thinking is the proper way to engage with the future. And the idea here is that going to uncharted territory requires seeing without being beholden to any boxes. All right, that's right. I hate the phrase, think outside the box. You start by knowing what has been, but then you put that down and try to see what could be without it. Now, the, the, the natural consequence of this is that you will take something in a direction and it will be in a new direction of uncharted territory, but the process of creativity is being, being able to, to see the structure that we're building and look past just what is. Creativity is about wondering what else the world could look like, and it's best uncovered through practices of curiosity and questions. De Bono actually lists six processes for this, by the way, but they are all ways of seeing the world differently from what you currently see, and then practically moving in that, that direction. He uses the example of picking apples. You know, you have to know the best current way of picking apples. You have to be trained in that. But instead of just continuing that line of thinking and norm, that's a self-maximizing system, you have to start from scratch. And whether through brainstorming or random stimulation or just experimenting with alternatives, you might come up with a way of picking apples that takes the current norm and either subverts it or improves it in a way that wouldn't naturally extend from what is known. You put the boxes that you've inherited to the side, you look and see what is possible, and then you continue what you've inherited. And even if you come up with a really strange, random-seeming way of picking apples, you're still continuing the story that you've been handed. The image here that gets used, though, is of, uh, instead of digging the same hole deeper, that's linear thinking, you explore the terrain and you dig somewhere else. Again, we'll get into all of this another time, but the point is that you will end up extending the terrain of what is known, you know, in that human story that you're a part of, by imagining the world differently. Creativity is about wondering what else this could look like, gauging its effectiveness based on the light of the past, and then adding it to the toolbox of what we can do from here. At best, this allows you to see something that can be healthily adapted to the present, 
but a word of warning is necessary. Creativity is powerful, and not always for the better. Overall, we just need to be honest about what we've inherited. We need to honor it. We need to acknowledge the value that it brings within the story of the world that we're just a part of. But then we need to pay attention to where we will continue to go and what inheritance we are leaving as we do. You want to keep life from becoming a stagnant museum or artifact of the past? You need growth. You want to keep life from becoming obscure or meaningless or a pursuit of a destination that may destructively fail or lead to useless wandering? You need roots. That is how we participate in the existential dance of roots and growth. Where we come from will take us to where we are going. The balance of tradition and progress. That existential dance, both are essential. We need to honor the past, yet we also need to transcend it. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.